Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game-Changing Predictive Machine Learning, presented by SAP. The best run SAP. You'll hear from innovators who know how to use game-changing technologies and business strategies to shake up the status quo around how predictive capabilities are utilized and delivered to create real business impact. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Welcome, 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 welcome. If you know what that means, that means we have four panelists today. We are so excited to launch this brand new series, one of three we're launching here in the month of June 2018. This is Game Changing Predictive Machine Learning Radio, presented by SAP, episode number one. We love new series debuts. And what's so exciting is that we talk about machine learning on so many of our Game Changer shows, but we've never focused on the predictive aspects, and we've never really honed in on it on a specific series. So that is happening today. So as I said, welcome, 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 welcome. If you want to run with the Game Changers, you are always in the right place when you tune us in here on the Business Channel. Let me get started with the buzz. That's where we start out with a quote that sets the stage for our topic. Here's a quote from recent Ventana research. We've had people from Ventana on several of our Game Changers shows, and here's some research they found. Quote, there are not enough trained data scientists, that's a key word, remember it, to meet today's business goals of improving efficiency and automating tasks using machine learning. So we got data scientists in there and we got machine learning in there. What's going on? Well, Ventana in this particular study found that only 40% of the organizations they surveyed have staff capable of performing data analysis without the help of IT. What does that mean? Well, it means there is a gap. There is a void in the talent pool. To fill it, something is emerging. They are calling or they're being called citizen data scientists. You may be one of those people. We're going to find out what that means, who they are, how they work, and how's that going for companies around the world. So again, welcome to our newest series. Thrilled to be here. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, producer and host. And let me tell you who my four panelists are. First up in a moment, I'm going to introduce you to Richard Mooney, Lead Product Manager for the Predictive Analytics Product Portfolio, including SAP Analytics Cloud Predictive and a lot more. Welcome to Richard. Joining him is Paramala Narasimha. She is the Director for Advanced Analytics at Cox Communications. We're also joined by Mark, I think it's Dr. Mark, Tierlink, T-E-E-R-L-I-N-K, Global VP of SAP Leonardo, AI, that's Artificial Intelligence and New Markets at SAP. And rounding out the panel is a gentleman with a name I'm going to pronounce very carefully, Eric Machaday. He is heading the Advanced Analytics Development Team in the SAP Leonardo and Analytics End-to-End Unit. That's a very long title, Eric. Welcome to our panelists. Let's start out with the opening quote. How the show works is that I ask our guests in advance to send me an inspirational quote that has nothing to do with the topic, and then I ask them to relate it to the topic. So, Richard Mooney has sent us a quote from Yuval Noah Harkari, who wrote Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Uh, I have his Hebrew name here, but I'm not going to pronounce it. Yuval Noah Harari is a, it's Harari or Harkari? Harkari, I've got it. And he is a young man born in 1976, an Israeli historian and tenured professor in the Department of History at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. 
He's the author of the international bestseller, Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind from 2014, and also Homo Deus, D-E-U-S, A Brief History of Tomorrow the Following Year. He writes examining the concepts of free will, conscience, consciousness, and definitions of intelligence. Here is the quote Richard has selected. One of history's few iron laws is that luxuries tend to become necessities and to spawn new obligations. Richard Mooney, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today? I'm very good, Bonnie. Thanks very much. Thank you for joining me. Talk to me about this fascinating quote. We've never had a quote from this gentleman before on one of our shows, so I can't wait to hear how you're going to relate it to our topic today. Please go ahead. So I guess the the key point about the quote is that you can never turn the clock back. Uh, humans, humankind is always striving to to do more, to be able to generate more. And um, all technology starts off as magic, and then gradually it becomes understood, it becomes industrialized or programmatized, and then eventually it's democratized where it's available to everybody. And at that point, people fail to notice it. And uh, essentially what they do is they, they go off and they, they strive in other areas. And we can see this happening with machine learning. Originally, when the consumer type of Internet giants like Google and Amazon started using it uh, in the last 15 to 20 years, it was like something that was magic. They were able to do something that had never been done before. But we can see that every company and every user in every company gradually wants to take advantage of it. And effectively, we're going to have to open up the technology to enable them to be able to do that. And, and that's how I, I, I think that the point about that quote is that what, what was uh, something that was a luxury in the past gradually becomes a necessity. I think that's happening with machine learning and data science as we speak. Thank you very much. And one question before I move on to Paramala and introduce her. Richard, do you think that the citizen data scientists know what they're doing or what they used to? We used to call it rogue IT. I don't know if you remember that term a few years ago. People who just kind of did their thing. So do you think that they're adding value and, and are they getting what they need to do to be data scientists, even though they're not specifically trained or hired for that job? Just a quick overview of what your thoughts are on this, please. I, I, I think that it's, it's something that is it's not an immediate thing that a, a, a citizen can pick up highly specialized tools and be able to work with the type of um, the competence of a fully trained data scientist. But I think the tools have to evolve to the point at which that expertise isn't needed in order mm-hmm. for, for data to really um, to, to actually be able to deliver on the promises that that it has so it's not they probably don't have those toolings and those capabilities today but but gradually that's a trend that that happens with with all technology we don't need to be able to build an engine in order to be able to drive a car Thank you very much. Very astute comments and looking forward to much more from you during the show, Richard Mooney. Now let's move on to our second panelist, Parabala Narasimha. She's at Cox Communications and she has sent me a 
very interesting quote from a character in Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix by J.K. Rowling, or Rowling, depending on how you pronounce her last name. And I found that this is a quote from Rowena Ravenclaw, and she was a Scottish witch, ooh, noted for her <laughs> intelligence and creativity and regarded as one of the greatest witch of the age. She was one of the four founders of the Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Witchcraft and Wizardry, along with Godric Gryffindor. Helga Hufflepuff and Salazar Slytherin and you can tell Paramala that I don't know much about Harry Potter because I'm <laughs> struggling with the names but I'm, I'm not admitting that on global radio so here is the quote there one two three four just a couple of words this is a good one wit beyond measure is man's greatest treasure Paramala welcome to Game Changers how are you today oh I'm I'm well thank you thank you for having me we are delighted to have you on the show. Tell me, are you a big are you a big Harry Potter fan? And how in the world did you find this quote? And you have to tell me what does it have to do with our topic on citizen data scientists? Paramala, go ahead. Oh, ab- absolutely. Um, I am a big fan of um, you know the Harry Potter series, the books first, and then the movies. Um, definitely not like a nerd that I know every single you know a piece of it. But, uh, you know, serious enough. You know, I have a 13-year-old who constantly makes me aware of all these things. So um, I, do like, I do like this particular uh, quote because this topic, we're talking about, you know, the making of a citizen data scientist and talking about automation and efficiencies and things like that. Um, however, I, I do believe that, you know, as, as um, humans and as... Uh, you know, in today's business world, I think wisdom and intelligence is still, you know, is is really what's propelling us forward. You know, what we're asking the machines to do is to make us more efficient. Uh, we are going to, of course, eventually, you know, the, oh, we're going to have the robots think for us, but we're not mm-hmm. there yet. But still, we're thinking. We're thinking of what problems to solve. We are thinking about how to make things better and we're asking the machines to help us uh, get there. So I still think that, you know, that is, that's how I was relating it, saying that that is still really core, and it is important to me that we don't forget that, you know, that Thank, yep. intelligence very, and wisdom important. And very interesting, when you bring in the word in the quote, wit, we don't think of machines as having empathy, as having emotions, as having wit, right. which is such a, the measure, the treasure, right out of the quote. Do you think we're there yet, Paramala? Are we going to get there where they can feel, they can understand context and a sense of humor and cultural nuances? What do you think? Um, you know, uh, definitely greater minds have thought about this more. Uh, but however, I don't think we're there yet. Um, I do, you know, when when I talk to Alexa or, you know, Google Assistant, I, I still don't get that, you know, warm and fuzzy feeling. I know I'm talking to a robot. Um, I don't think we're there yet, but I'm sure, you know, with intelligent, intelligent minds, we're going to get there at some point. I'm not sure I really want all of that warm and fuzzies uh, <laughs> to be transferred to a robot. I'm kind of uh, out of sense on that. 
Well, you know, people fall in love with robots and operating systems, and we had the movie Her with Scarlett yeah. Johansson voicing the, the OS system a couple of years ago, and, and uh, the, the the hero, I forget who played him, was devastated when he found out that she was having the same quote-unquote relationship with thousands of other operating <laughs> system users. It just broke his heart. So we saw the human being very, very human, and she just wasn't at all. Uh, question for you. I just asked Richard Mooney, what are your thoughts on citizen data scientists? Do they know what they're doing? Should we encourage them? Just quickly, what's your point of view? Yeah. I think, I think um, they know more of what they're doing today than a few years ago, because I think that gap is uh, narrowing or blurring because more is expected of them. Um, I, I I would encourage. I would encourage them. Okay, no we'll more. talk to you more about that during the show. Thank you so much. And now let's speak with uh, Mark Tierling, Global VP of SAP Leonardo, and a lot more. And he sent us a quote from John F. Kennedy, John Fitzgerald, known as Jack Kennedy, U.S. President, uh, let's see, 35th President. He lived from 1917. Unfortunately, he was taken out by a sniper. We know who he is, November 22nd, 1963, a day none of us who lived through it will ever forget. And he was also... The the state of Massachusetts. Uh, he represented the state of Massachusetts in the U.S. House of Representatives, and he was in the U.S. Senate prior to becoming president. Here's the quote. This is interesting. We believe that if men have the talent to invent new machines that put men out of work, they have the talent to put those men back to work. And I'm just going to say, I think he meant men and women and everybody. So, Mark Tierlink, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today? And tell me how you picked this very interesting quote. Go ahead. So, hey, Bonnie, how are you doing? I'm, um, well, thank you for asking. Go ahead. Good. Um, so, so basically, there's this... this um, misconception every time we get a new kind of technology like artificial intelligence that it will automate the economy and it's going to put people out of work. And the reality is that historically technology changes, and I'm not just talking about IT, have always indeed dipped, but human creativity then boosted and we got new employment, new opportunities. It doesn't matter if it's transition from horses to cars in the early 20th century, or it was the changes that we had basically in the internet when it came out. That indeed, some stores had to close, but also an incredible amount of opportunities opened up for people that started their own web store. Um, it's, it's more interesting when we go to artificial intelligence where we actually democratize knowledge. Um, they always say AI is the best when a decision can be automated. But I, I like to say that gives a lot of these, these warnings for job losses Losses and overshadows the biggest benefit of AI, which is what I call the augmentation, where you combine mm -hmm. the human intelligence and the artificial intelligence, or you, you support the heavy lifting and take them off their shoulder. I mean, let, let's be clear. Nobody goes for four years to college and three years to law school to become a lawyer, to spend 70% of their time cutting and pasting and comparing documents. Nobody goes to 72 spreadsheets a day after they have done their accountancy degree just to get some reconciliation on invoices. So what's interesting is what is the value we can create when we automate tasks, not necessarily jobs, but tasks, and take heavy lifting away from knowledge workers. What is the value we can create and what are the new kind of jobs we can put? And I think that's a pretty good sec to your, to your citizen data scientist part as well. 
Thank you very much. And what's your thought? I asked your other, your colleagues on the panel, do you think it's a good idea to have citizen data scientists? And I'm going to go around the table in a few minutes and ask you each to define what that role is, if it's an official job title or not. What do you think, good or bad? So, so first is actually, I neither, because the reality is we forget that artificial intelligence and machine learning are based on two things. They're based on training data, situations we have been in before, and experts that train that. And the reality is most people that we want to be that citizen data scientist are the experts in our company who have those models in their heads. They already, by instinct or experience, would predict, like, when are we going to run out of stock? When I'm going to renegotiate a new contract? How do I deal with this forecasting part? So mm-hmm. it always starts with your best experts becoming those citizen data scientists, people with a business background. And then you certainly start that cloning to other people anyway. So for me, the citizen data scientist is basically giving your experts tools to take some of the heavy lifting away. Doesn't make them data scientists, just makes them better in their business job. Ah, very interesting perspective. Thank you so much. And now let's go one more seat around the table to our fourth panelist, Eric Machade. I'll spell that for you, M-A-R-C-A-D-E. I hope I'm doing your name justice, Eric. And Eric has found a wonderful quote from Mark Twain, Samuel Langhorn Clemens, 1835 to 1910. And Mark Twain was his pen name, American writer, humorist, entrepreneur, publisher, and lecturer, and this was from his book. It was a nonfiction social commentary in the form of a travelogue that Mark Twain published in 1897 called Following the Equator. And it's about uh, Twain declared bankruptcy in 1894 due to a failed investment, bad investment, into a quote-unquote revolutionary typesetting machine. Maybe he was ahead of his time. He tried to get out from under $100,000 debt. I don't know if anybody knows, but in that year, 1894, $100,000 in debt is equivalent in 2010, which is eight years ago, to $2.5 million. So he started touring the British Empire and looking for speaking opportunities and lectures. What can I tell you? Here is the quote Eric has selected from Mr. Twain. Prophecy is a good line of business, but it is full of risks. Eric, welcome to Game Changers. How are you today? Just fine. Thank you for joining us. Talk to me about the quote. Are you a big follower and fan of Mark Twain and all of his writings and meanderings, or did you just happen to come across this and say, that would be good for our topic? What's your thought? I will be very frank. I just uh, ran into that quote, and I thought that it was perfectly aligned with with the subject that uh, that we are talking today. And, Thank you. Uh, and <laughs> I thought so. Me, <laughs> Go ahead. You know, when you talk about uh, it's full of risks, that means that uh, when you give those technologies to citizen data scientists, and I think that uh, the definition that everybody can agree on about what is a data scientist is that it's not uh, a data scientist. Okay, if you are a citizen, you are not a data scientist. And, uh, and that means that if you want to provide those technologies to people with, that do not have a deep knowledge in all those technologies, that means that somehow when, when the knowledge is not in front of the screen, it should be behind the screen. So that means it's a computer. Mm-hmm. So um, we have a lot of techniques now in order to mitigate and limit uh, the, the risks that, uh, that uh, we can have when providing those technologies to, to layman people, I would say, or people coming from an analyst background or business background. And I think it's uh, the time is now. So that that would be my conclusion. 
<laughs> Thank you. And let me get one more conclusion from you. Is it a good thing or a bad thing? And, and I'm going to go around the table and ask for a definition in a moment. But is the concept of citizen data scientists a good thing in terms of what companies need to fill that void I described in the beginning? Or do you think it's, is it dangerous? Is is there danger on them, Lar Hills, as I've, I've heard said out west? So what do you think, Eric? I think it's a, well, in a way, it's a good thing, okay? I think that the term citizen data scientist is not perhaps the, the best term because at the end of the day, I don't think that any anyone put into his business card, you know, I'm a citizen data scientist. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, the fact that uh, we provide these technologies to more and more people, okay, coming from the business background, from the analytic background, uh, is is something that is uh, inevitable right now, and that's a good thing, uh, because we have enough technologies in order to forbid them to make, uh, to make really stupid mistakes. Thank you very much. Let's go back around the table. This is normally in the part of the show where I ask where you are in the world and what you love to drink, but just let me get a quick definition from each of you. We've been bandying the term about citizen data scientist. That's our topic, the making of a citizen data scientist. So we're using the word citizen, and I want to make sure our business audience around the world understands citizen of what, where, who, who decides, who gets appointed, who self-appoints themselves a citizen data scientist, and then we'll talk about the challenges and the hacks if we have time. So Richard Mooney, quickly, how do you dis- define a citizen data scientist, and specifically, what does the word citizen mean in this context, please? Um, so to me, I, I'm, I'm not a, a, an expert in, in uh, type of Greek democracy, but I, I think the thought behind the word citizen originally was that you had citizens on the one hand and you had specialists on the other. And uh, a specialist was somebody who had a very defined role in society and that, that had a very specialized set of skills in order to be able to fulfill that role and the citizen was somebody who was able to work in a more kind of general way. So to me, what a, a citizen data scientist is, very similar to what Mark said, is it's somebody who is not employed as a data scientist. They're probably a, bit, um, they're probably a key part of a business process in some other area. They have an awful lot of expertise, and mm-hmm. they realize that the data that they have at their disposal could allow them to do their job an awful lot more effectively, and they, they want to be able to do that. So they're, they're looking and seeking out for ways in order to achieve that, that goal. And the, the, the tooling or what they use or anything else then is just a means to an end for them. And once they've achieved the goal that they want to achieve, be it to figure out what customers are churning, to figure out how, to, how, how a particular payments are going to be made due, then they go back to their day job and they may or may not use these type of capabilities again, but it'll be purely on a business-driven basis uh, as, they, as the need arises in their daily lives. Thank you very much. I appreciate that reference uh, you made historically about the word citizen. I like that. Let's go around to Paramala Narasimha. Paramala, do you agree or disagree with that definition, or do you want to give us your own? Um, well, I mean, I think... Um, somewhat agree, I think, with what uh, Richard was saying. Somewhere, I think the citizen data. Uh, I in my team, we don't have any. We don't have a data scientist uh, title as such. But it's somewhere in between a generalist and a specialist. I know Richard was saying that you know there's more a generalist because you, um, you know, you're not you're not 
focused on one particular thing, but you want to solve a lot of different things. Uh, my view is that um, the citizen data scientist is really uh, more of a problem solver, um, you know, have a, have a scope, a broader scope, which lends itself to the generalist view, but then have a lot of tools at your disposal and really has the, um, you know, the aptitude and the um, intelligence to kind of bring all these together. So I do encourage that idea of, you know, uh, a problem-solving approach. Thank you very much, Paramala. Mark Tierlink, I'm up to you. What do you think is the definition? And feel free to agree or disagree with Richard and or Paramala. Go ahead. Well, actually, um, it's going to be boring, but I'm agreeing pretty much with Paramala and with, with Richard on this. I think, additional to what they're saying, we should not forget that where data scientists take statistical methods as their base, which could be machine learning in combination with any kind of techniques. Most people that have a econometric or data science background are trained to get the bias out and to be as clean as possible with the data mm-hmm. and start with the raw data. People that are in the business process, like the, uh, the, the citizen data scientists, who mostly start with their bias. This is how I've always done it. This is how we've always done it, and this has been successful for us. So that doesn't mean that that person and the models that they create or work with isn't going to be successful. But the scalability for an organization based on one individual is is a is a thing you need to be really careful before. With I mean, the moment we we translate knowledge from people to machine learning, um, we always say like, make sure we have multiple experts, multiple in this case citizen data scientists there to train the ML and to train the AI and to come with examples, so we can actually see where their opinions are conflicting and where mm-hmm. the different biases points are so we can stay clean. So in summary, um, citizen data scientists, I think it's always phenomenal when somebody does their job and they offload some repetitive tasks and heavy lifting by technology like like what Richard and I are working on in analytics and in artificial intelligence and machine learning. When they offload their task to actually make more time available to use their knowledge and create value, and there is a risk, at the other hand, that as a company, if you don't provide them with bias and you don't provide them with clean data, right, you could actually get a lot of results going in a direction you don't want them to go. Um, additional to that, I think that we forget sometimes that organizations don't always clean the backbone part. So I can be a citizen data scientist. I work with the data that's given to me. But I'm not always able to judge if the data is clean, if the data is good, if the data is correct. So all the decisions I'm going to make are going to be based on already something that isn't. I mean, we all know the garbage in, garbage out principle. Mm-hmm. You give phenomenal people phenomenal tools. doesn't make the results are going to be better. So you still need to do something of some governance in an organization to, to get some better backbone and better support to deal with the bias and the quality of the data you provide these people. Thank you very much. And one more around the table. We didn't forget you, Eric Mahadi. Talk to me, Eric. What do you think? Definitions. Who is citizen in your world for citizen data scientist? Well, I think that uh, I could replace citizen data scientist by wannabe data scientist. For me, there is a 
the notion of trajectory. So it could be a business guy, it could be an analyst guy, it could be a programming guy in a way, but that is that is looking towards or that is driving towards making sure that he can use data in order to solve some business problems that he has to that he has around him. Okay. And so there is this notion of trajectory and also this notion of ad hoc uh, things. So he, he needs to be able to use the tools in order to solve a, a a specific use case. Uh, it's not his day-to-day job, okay, but he must be given uh, the tools and technology in order to basically solve that by extracting insights and information from data and at the end of the day helping the machines making the decisions better instead of him. And that, that would be the, the definition. So this notion of trajectory, this notion of uh, um, not doing that every day, but uh, being enabled uh, to do that when needed. Thank you very much. And I've just Googled the definition of citizen data scientist, and I found a definition way back from 2015 from Gartner. And this is what came up in my 59 second Google search of 120 million results. Got to count the zeros there. Okay. Uh, a recent Gartner report defines a citizen data scientist as, quote, a person who creates or generates models that leverage predictive or prescriptive analytics, but whose primary job function is outside of the field of statistics and analytics. I'm just going to leave that there. I think that encapsulates it nicely. Let's go around the table briefly and find out where our panelists are right now. And briefly tell me, what is your favorite drink in the whole wide world that makes you so smart? Richard Mooney, you're up first. Um, I guess I'm I'm based in Ireland, so it, it has to be Ishkabaha, which is the the water of life. And of course, Ishkabaha once it once people who are not able to pronounce it properly started to spread it into the, around the rest of the world, eventually became the word we know now as whiskey. Aha! Uh-huh. And I think I figured out how to spell it. Uh, one spelling is U-I-S-C-E-B-E-A-T-H-A, literally water of life, was the name given by Irish monks of the early Middle Ages to distilled alcohol. It's simply a translation of the Latin aqua vice, V-I-T-A-E. And another way to spell it is I-S, well, I spelled it badly, but that's the spelling we're going to go with. Thank you, Richard Mooney. Thank you for being with us. Paramala Narasimha at Cox Communications, where are you today and what's your favorite drink? Um, hi, yes, I am uh, based in Atlanta, Georgia, and, um, you know, my favorite drink, it's going to be boring, I like coffee, I really like coffee, but uh, being in Atlanta, I think, you know, maybe Coca-Cola is my second, my second choice. Okay, (laughs) are you a a classic Coke person, Paramala? Do you like it the, the way it was meant to be, right? Exactly, I do not like all these modifications. I'm a purist. I, <laughs> I like it just the way I don't. I don't do uh, drink that all the time, but when I do, I love it on, on the rocks. <laughs> okay, very interesting. Do you have one of those soda glasses that says Coca Cola on the side? It's yes. kind of yeah. Okay, I think I think we Absolutely. all. I have a little one and I have a big one. I grew up in the day when we had soda and baked goods and milk dairy goods delivered to the house at the back door. And we had the soda man who would come maybe once a month or so with cases of whatever my family needed, big bottles, little bottles, six packs of Coke. We went through them like water. And uh, we had baked goods from the Dugan man, and we had uh, the milk man come as well, milk, eggs, butter, and everything. 
Interesting. That's where I think a lot of people are trying to get our culture to go today, but we were doing it way back. I won't tell you how far. <laughs> Thank you very much for the good memories. Mark Tierlink, where are you today and what do you love to drink? I am in Washington, D.C. today and I'm having a phenomenal cup of coffee here. Um, it's always hard to say what's your favorite drink. I think during the day to function, it's coffee. During the night, it moves to uh, wine and to whiskey. I think the story about the uh, coffee is a much more interesting thing to share here. Okay. What's your favorite coffee? So it's called Kizo Sholi. It's uh, from uh, Rwanda. It's from a small cooperative um, in the Mohanga district. The reason that I first discovered it, it was a, a volunteer project in 2014 with the cooperative. We went there with a bunch of people in a part of a corporate Peace Corps activity to... Um, to bring vocational skills, train the trainer. And reality mm-hmm. is, one, you come to the conclusion that all you do is you put a drop in the ocean or right, your bucket is not even filled more than 10 millimeters at the end of what you think you are doing to achieve. And the second mm-hmm. is for everybody who thinks they bring the blessings of technology and they're going to help people to, in a coffee cooperative and in a village, to actually help to be connected to the Internet. We hadn't really, really assumed that we were going to organize the whole village to make, to ditch a trench and to lay four miles of fiber to the village to make sure the village actually had connection. We were already starting with the point like, okay, when we arrive, we have these laptops with us, how we're going to train the trainers, not realizing like... um, the last mile is probably the most important. Anyway, it's a phenomenal bourbon coffee. Um, it's light, light roast. I think both critical Americans and very critical Europeans will enjoy it. And for those of you who are interested, you can get it at Bourbon Coffee in D.C. Um, of Wisconsin. And it is a really all the profits go to the cooperative, which makes it even a better taste. Thank you very much. Can you spell that for me, please, just so we have it? Uh, so the coffee name is K-I-Z-I space S-H-O-L-I Kizzy Sholi and you can get it at bourboncoffeeusa.com or go to Bourbon Coffee in Cambridge or D.C. I've got it here from the Central Rift Valley region of Rwanda. Kizzy Sholi is our brightest light coffee roast. It's core taste note, tasting notes of lemon and chocolate blend. Ooh, I think I could that's like the, that. Thank that's you. the one. And of course that's... you need a real espresso maker for this. Of course you do. That'll be my next purchase. Thank you very much. And now let's go around the table one more time to Eric Markaday. Eric, where are you today, and what do you love to drink that powers you? So, in fact, I'm based in Paris, but today I'm in Vancouver, Canada. And, uh, and in terms of favorite drinks going into the summer, that would be something like Caipirinha, because that's the perfect drink for me, you know, when you go... In uh, in uh, in the sunset and uh, it's warm around and uh, whatever and uh, you want to forget everything about uh, your hard day of work. California it is. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very interesting and happy to have you. What are you doing in Vancouver? You said what are you doing there on business or pleasure? Uh, a lot of meetings. Um, I do not see the sun right now. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, everybody, you don't know me, the four of you, but I'm based in Durham, North Carolina, broadcasting from my home office slash studio. I moved here just about 10 months ago from Long Island, New York, not missing being that close to the big city or not miss and not missing Long Island. But when I'm on the radio, and today is a two-live radio show day, we call it a double header. they don't let me anywhere near caffeine. 
you know why. So all I'm allowed to have is cool, clear water, and I can think about something more interesting than that, but it'll have to be later after we're off the air. You know what? This is such an interesting panel and such a great topic. We're going to skip the break in the interest of, of covering more territory. So please, my panelists, forgive me. I'm not going to let you go somewhere for 90 seconds. You're all mine for the next however many minutes we have. Not that much time left to the show. So I'm looking at Richard Mooney's notes. And Richard, I found something I don't think we've covered yet. Let's quickly go around the table on this, then I'll pick one from Paramala, one from uh, Mark, and then one from Eric. Let's see what we can do. You say the current separation of analytics disciplines, such as business intelligence, advanced analytics, planning, and predictive analytics will disappear. We could save that for the predictions round, but I think we'll cover it now. So what's your thought on that? Um, I, I just think that effectively the separation that we have today is, is driven by artificial things. The first artificial thing is that when people were originally building solutions to solve these various different problems, they were they were thinking about one specific area, and and like over time, the, what what starts off as very disparate solutions will will meld into one. I I think the second reason is that again all of these types of areas were once highly specialized but mm-hmm. as type of people's understanding and their awareness of analytics in general has grown people have started to take on all of these disciplines themselves as part of their daily work and and have started to become um effectively self self driving and as a result of that the, the it's okay for to have separate solutions if everybody using those solutions is a specialist. But in reality, as as they become multidisciplinary and are able to be to use these type of capabilities for even though it's not their primary job, it, they're all going to coalesce into a, a single solution. And the intersection between the three disciplines will will generate huge amounts of value value for business users. Interesting. Is this going to make, and and I have to go back to our title of this episode, the debut on our new show, Game Changing Predictive Machine Learning. Will this make life easier or harder for the citizen data scientists we're discussing? Because the topic is the making of a citizen data scientist, challenges and hacks. So will this make it less of a challenge or will they need more hacks in order to do what they think is their their new job? What's your thought on that, Richard? And I'm going to go around the table and ask everybody the same question. It will make it much easier because the business intelligence capabilities of the of the platform will enable people to be able to share and comment and collaborate a lot easier uh, and provide an awful lot more rich visualization capabilities to to be able to um, to be able to like drive interaction with other people around the business and a, a huge amount of the work that's done with predictive is for the full, for the for the for the challenge of planning. So actually I- enabling these three disciplines and three type of capabilities to go together, they'll be hugely complementary. Thank you very much. Paramala, agree or disagree that this will make it easier for citizen data scientists? Paramala? Um, yes, um, I do agree. I think it would make it easier for the citizen data scientists by bringing all of these together, I think it would be uh, a big value add uh, because today part of the job of that 
citizen data scientist is to actually stitch all these things together somehow and make things that you're doing in advanced analytics or predictive, you know, match what's going on in BI. Many times they don't match at all. And so by putting them all in the same place, I think um, it, I think it would be a value add. I think people can still add value in different parts of it. Like, you know, even if we have one big platform, it doesn't mean everybody can do everything. Um, Mm -hmm. I do think, I I believe, I still am a firm believer that, you know, specialization yields better results. Um, I, I, I believe that. But I think this kind of platform, what it enables and is important is that it brings all the data together, which I think is important. Thank you very much. Let's go around to Dr. Mark Tierlink. Mark, agree or disagree? We've got some interesting points of view here. Um, I agree with, with Richard. Um, in a, a lot of the boundaries we see today come historically from the vendors that were bringing things forward. We've seen over time that specialized tools and specialized software with every new generation of software or technology gets automatically absorbed. A very good example is things that were separate apps on your phone during the first or to second generation of the iPhone are now all built in the operation system. In the operating system, you go to pictures and you do things that you used to be a, have Photoshop or you used to have any kind of specialized tool for and 80% of those functions are in there. Now, that means for the technologies players that bring those other tools, they either upgrade their innovation or they wider with other technologies. I, a lot of the latter we see. And when you go to the definition of artificial intelligence as I use, it, it's mm-hmm. pretty much the same. It, I mean, the definition that I literally use is that we say it's a set of knowledge and better technologies. So it's not just tools, but tools, but how do I solve this problem? But it's a a stack. It's a stack of a series of technologies where the output of one is the input of the next. So I pull Mm -hmm. up some data. The output of the data pool then goes to a statistical process. The output of the statistical process goes to some visualization. The visualization then goes to a decision flow. The output of the decision flow then goes through a machine learning model. The output of machine learning model then goes maybe not between to a yes or no choice, but between pros and cons. So what we see is that a lot of these technologies and tools, we were already seeing being used by what you call the citizen data scientists. They just had the crappy part of their job description that they had to change windows and change screens. It's a little bit like in the travel industry when you go from an old-fashioned green terminal to a Windows application till picking up the phone to make the reservation to go back and type it in, right? We, we want, as a business, we want things to get integrated further. Now, as, as Paramala says, how do you still have things available for those specialists to make sure you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater? I think that's going to be the, the challenge for the industry. Thank you very much. Eric Markaday, love to have your thoughts on this. Join us, please. Yes, of course, agree. And uh, I mean, uh, Mark talked about the, this kind of virtuous circle between, you know, analysis where you can use data visualizations in order to explore the data and then predict uh, when you will forecast things that you don't know yet. 
that will be used as input for planning too. And uh, then you loop the loop because, of course, the time is going by and uh, what you've done uh, last month, you have to redo that this month. And uh, if you have uh, everything in uh, one click away instead of uh, having to upload the data or connect to your data in a BI environment, then in a planning environment, then in a predictive environment, and if you have everything handy just uh, in the same place, that's going to ease on the bring a lot of velocity to the decision-making process overall. So, I agree. Thank you very much. Good agreement there. Instead of going back to you, Richard, and asking you to wrap this one up, I want to move quickly to a statement from Paramala that's a little bit controversial, and then we'll quickly make the rounds of the panel. We're almost ready for our predictions <laughs> round, but I want to see if we can pick up a couple more topics here. So Paramala said to me before the show, she advises her analysts the following – Automate yourselves out of your current job because you can do much more than that. There's so much work to go around that needs intelligent minds to free up the time instead of doing the busy work. Paramala, what do you really tell them? This is it. This is what you say. Don't be afraid of technology. Don't be afraid of automation. Don't be afraid of having a robot or a personal assistant take over their mundane, boring, repetitive tasks. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, exactly all those things um, that you mentioned, because if they don't do it, somebody somebody else will. Um, And I'd rather them do it and then move on to the next, you know, the next big thing. Somebody's going to automate that job if, you know, if you don't think about it. If you can, if you are doing it, you know, uh, without applying your mind and you're just like, you know, I think it was it, uh, I think it was Richard who was saying like, you know, copying, cut and paste and spreadsheets and all those things. If you're not doing, uh, if you're doing that, then uh, that is a waste of time. And it might, you know, at the end of it, you might be producing value. At the end of all that analysis, the cut and paste, you are sending a recommendation uh, you know, you are sending the, you know, something that changes the way we do business. That's the piece that most analysts enjoy. They find that when they change the way we do things or when we make processes uh, extremely better or make the lives of our customer better, that's what they really enjoy. So why, why do we not do more of that instead of spending endless hours um, doing repetitive tasks. So my advice is usually, you know, when I, ha- I, I mean, you know, if you are not automating what you're doing, um, you're not doing something right. Thank you. And you know what? That's a perfect segue into something, a myth that Mark Tierling sent me. Mark, instead of just asking if you agree or disagree with Paramount, let me read the statement from you. And I think this is going to be a good segue, I think. You say, myth, AI, artificial intelligence, will automate the economy and put people out of work. Reality. Historically, technological change has initially dipped, but then later boosted employment and living standards by enabling new industries and sectors to emerge. Is one of those new industries and sectors the data scientist, the citizen data scientist? Mark, talk to me. Well, definitely. I mean, we we need to keep two things in mind, right? Humans, by definition, and and my background is in, in... um, human behavior, my PhDs in consumer behavior. So I, I claim to have a little bit of an opinion on this. Humans, by by definition, are trying to avoid boring, mundane, repetitive tasks. Nobody gets motivated by not using their brain. That's one of the 
things that evolution has pushed us forward. Now, the other thing is that we always think that new technology should do really, really cool moonshot stuff. The reality is, when new technology arrives, we want to do the same things we always did. We just want to do it faster, cheaper, we want to use more data, and we want to get all the boring, repetitive stuff out of it. And we're going to want to get the inconvenience out of it. So if you look, for instance, to the uh, Uber app, the Uber app wasn't that incredible or groundbreaking, but it took two things really out of it. You wanted to stand on the street and not stand in the rain in New York in the dark and see a thousand yellow cabs pass by. You want to know, sure, that when you raise your hand, you actually get a cab, right? So standing under the dry cover of the hallway, seeing where your cap is coming, bang, one step out of the process taken. And then again, jumping out of the cap when you're in the airport without having to fumble for coins to pay for the, for the drivers the second. So what we see with artificial intelligence and machine learning, the best cases are when we take a process that we really know, and we take one or two steps out and we infuse AI in it. Now, when we go back to that misbelief, right, the misbelief is that we will automate the whole economy away. The reality is we won't. We will take one or two tasks away that are boring and repetitive, and they make things available. The second, they will create new opportunities. Now, let me take the best example with technology. When in the 70s, calculators became commercially available, we suddenly saw that architects having that calculator no longer needed to use slide rulers, but they were much faster in checking their calculations, and they had much more time available to make better buildings. It didn't, however, help bad architects or uncreative architects to get better. They just made less mistakes. But it did allow the better architects actually to help us escape from the concrete, ugly 60s building and became basically the beginning of what we saw in the 80s as a better architecture. So the summary is technology will allow us, because we as human beings are really, really smart and versatile and adaptive in these things. And if you take this this whole approach, and you take this positive approach, of course, it might sound utopian, that citizen data scientists will actually redefine their job by having more time available instead of cutting the corners for the things that need to be done and not having time to say, what if I do this different? What if I do something creative out of the box? You just need and a it, few people to change that, and we all will benefit. Be wonderful. Yep, I need to thank you, Mark. I, I feel like you're reciting poetry to me when you speak. You, you have a wonderful lilt when you describe even technology. So thank you. Eric, I want to be sure we get in something on the same topic. I'm just going to read a little bit from your notes. And then, Richard, I want you to get ready with your prediction. We're going to have to keep it to 60 seconds each because we only have five minutes left to the show. But, Eric, I just want to read this from your notes and just have you comment for 30 seconds on it. You say, everything that can be automated should be automated. As we've been saying, knowledge workers are are currently making tactical decisions like extending a warranty period, activating refurbishing when stocks are predicted to go low, focusing on opportunities that are likely to become a customer. And you say data science and machine learning can be used in all of these scenarios to have machine making decisions or providing strong recommendations. And you say, well, maybe this is your prediction. We can safely say that 50% of business processes will be fully automated in the coming years. So Eric, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start the predictions round with you. So why don't you give me a 60 second prediction based on our talking points today about citizen data scientists. Go ahead, Eric, you're up first. Lightning round, all yours. Okay. So, I mean, 
to come back on, on, on these automation techniques and uh, what we call citizen data scientists and uh, the automation of the, of the work and uh, especially the knowledge worker tasks, uh, at the end of the day, it all depends about what you're calling your job. So it's the fact that uh, is your job uh, solving the easy cases that can be automated or is your, your job focusing on the 5% of the cases that cannot be automated? So I think that... Uh, the prediction is that we will we will see a change of uh, job descriptions in a way, okay? So that again, everything that can be automated should be automated, but that will leave the I would say difficult cases where you need to express your creativity or thinking out of the box in order to solve uh, those uh, those cases. And I think that uh, the technologies such as predictive and machine learning techniques uh, will be invading all the enterprise applications and. And we'll automate anyway the business processes that are not automated today. Thank you very much. Brief and to the point. Thank you. Richard Mooney, I've got less than 60 seconds for you. Why don't you give me 45 seconds? Just a quick, quick, quick prediction on what will change about this topic, let's say, between now and 2020, because it's almost here. Go ahead. Um, I think if if we take by 2025, uh, okay. I think that we won't be talking about this anymore because it will be commonplace. Um, I I think that it will reduce um, type of some for, some parts some tasks within jobs, but in, in essence that that's what technology has been doing for a long time, and as the other panelists said, it will um, that it will open up opportunities for people to be able to focus on more more interesting and better work. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Paramala Narasimha at Cox Communications. Ignore the leaf blower outside my door. Go ahead, Paramala. Um, Yeah, I mean, I do think that, you know, there'll be more and more automation, of course. Um, But there'll be a blending of, um, you know, I think the business and technology roles because there are real business problems to be solved um, with you know, good technology stacks. So I think, I think there should there will be kind of a blending of the two roles, um, because I think really understanding the domain is really important to solving the real business problem. Um, we're gonna we're gonna be talking. Uh, I know 2020 is nearly here, so. Mm-hmm. We'll still see automation. I think we're still struggling with automating a lot of it. I I don't think we'll be completely done by 2020. Thank you very much. I have to rush this. Dr. Mark Tierlink, I've got 30 seconds for you. That's all I've got. Go ahead. Good. So basically what you see is with with devices like smartphones, etc., we already drive that a lot of technology takes over task for us. The same for smart devices at home. Um, 70% of the companies is already expected this year to embrace artificial intelligence. By 2020, that will be 90%. Gartner, the analyst, has calculated that around 2.3 million jobs will be automated um, or augmented are over 1.8 million existing jobs that will change. Now, the two most important things I predict that will have an influence that, that create the 2025 part from Richard is one, democratization of data and knowledge, and mm-hmm. two, a shift in education from math to more focus on statistics and data used by people. 
Thank you very much. Wonderful. Richard Mooney at SAP, Paramala Narasimha at Cox Communications, Dr. Mark Tierlink at SAP, and Eric Mahade. I hope I did well on your name at SAP. Thank you. What a great panel. We covered enough. We, 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 what we could do in, in 53 minutes with the panel of four. Shout out to our sponsor, John Skitka at SAP. John, you did a great debut, great panel, great topic. And the lady who helped put it all together and worked so hard in the background, Hannah White, you really rocked this one, Hannah. Welcome on board. Aaron at World Talk Radio, the business channel. Thanks for getting us on the air and keeping us on the air. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Veet, 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 veet. That's French for fast, fast. Right, Eric? Fasten your seatbelt. What are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Richard, Paramala, Mark, and Eric. Talk to you tomorrow on whatever show we have Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern. We'll be back then here on the business channel. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game-Changing Predictive Machine Learning, presented by SAP. The best run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham again Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.